0: two and a half admins episode two. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Jim. And we're back a week early. We said it'd be two weeks, but it was actually only a week. That's because we need to rejig the schedule. But from now on, it's going to be every two week. honestly. Um, and before we get started, we've got a couple of plugs then. Alan, you wanted to plug something.
1: Yes. Uh, so on uh, May 5th at 2pm... Eastern, which is 1800 UTC. Uh, I'm hosting uh, with a couple other people. My talk for BSDCAN is going to be a panel, and uh, we need to pre-record it, but we want to do that with a live audience that will actually ask questions and so on. Uh, So we're having a a panel on running a home lab uh, with myself, Michael W. Lucas, Mike Geiger, uh, Michael Dexter, and Nicholas Ising. So... Uh Me, Nicholas, and the rest of the Michaels uh will be talking about uh, our home labs uh, some tips uh, lessons learned from you know what not to do with your home lab and how not to end up with your home lab becoming production, lots of other fun stuff uh, but it'd be great if a bunch of people could show up in the chat room and and ask questions and so on and make it feel like it would if we had done this panel at the conference and had the audience shouting questions at us
0: cool we'll ask a link in the show notes. And I want to quickly plug the new show, which is another one of my new podcasts. That's with Alan Pope, Popey, and Daniel Foray from Elementary, and we answer questions from the audience—some silly, some about Linux, some about tech, some about just whatever. Uh, so check that out. That's at the new dot show. Uh, it's quite a light-hearted, fun podcast.
2: Yeah, Joe, I've got a plug, too, for Open Source 101 at Home coming up on May 12th. Uh, originally, this was an in-person event, but it's one of the many that have gone virtual. Uh, there will be tons of speakers ranging from myself to John Bacon to Jim Jagelski from Apache, and uh, it'll be a good time.
0: All right, well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, then. So let's do some news. And first of all, a quick follow-up from last time about the SMR drives.
1: Yeah, uh, so there was a, a, a great post from, uh, serve the home, uh, which is a website I'd like to follow, um, about why manufacturers can't just keep submarining these SMR drives into the channel. You know, I know, uh, Western Digital has come out with a page where they kind of tell you which drives are SMR, but you know, it's like, it should say in the, description of the product you know i shouldn't have to go to some secret web page i happen to know about it to know is is the drive in this uh size range where i know that it's smr and you know how do i know if it's old stock where i can can i get a four terabyte drive that is
2: definitely not smr and how do i tell i'd like to mention also as far as that goes uh, if you're one of the folks who bought western digital red smr drives and you're deeply unhappy about it now that you found out keep bugging Western Digital about it. They don't have an official policy, but a little birdie tells me if you're persistent and annoying enough, they will eventually give you some options that might make you happy.
1: Yeah, because I imagine if they don't, there could be a class action lawsuit eventually about you sold me the drive. That's not what it said it was.
0: All right, so something that caught my eye this week because it is from Canada and it involves DNS over HTTPS is that the Canadian Internet Registry Authority have launched something called the Canadian Shield Service. I thought this would just be a good excuse to talk about DNS over HTTPS, to be honest.
1: For people that don't get the joke, the Canadian Shield is an actual, like geologic feature of Canada. It's where this big rocky part where all the minerals are. It's good for mining and stuff. Yeah. So the Canadian Shield is actually a thing, and they're just kind of, it's it's a pun, but it doesn't work because most people won't get it. Sounds like it could have been an excellent John Candy movie back in the day. <laughs> Well, they kind of did that one. What was it? Um, Canadian Bacon, right? Where he's going to invade Canada.
0: (laughs) And so this is essentially an alternative DNS over HTTPS provider.
1: And they have three different versions of it. So you can just get, you know, I just want privacy, or I want protection from malware too, or I want to keep my kids out of the porn. So there's uh, three different sets of addresses, and you pick one based on the amount of filtering you want them to
0: do. And so, how do you two feel about Do or DNS over HTTPS? Then, do you agree with me that it's good in principle, but it hasn't quite been implemented properly yet?
2: I don't really have any particular issues with it. Um, you can find people that want to get into a holy war over uh, you know DNS over HTTPS versus DNS over TLS, but at the end of the day, we really need to close that loophole of having DNS go out you know over clear text. And I'm just not that picky about how it gets done.
1: Yeah, like I agree there. Um, I think the main things are, A, trying to sell it as this is going to protect like dissidents in other countries because it goes over HTTPS and isn't distinguishable from other traffic. Gives those people a false sense of security where it turns out you need a lot more than just your DNS to be encrypted if you want the state not to come and murder you because of what you said. And so some of the excuses they've used for the way it was implemented don't make sense for me. I think the biggest part of it that I have a problem with is not the protocol itself. It's things like Firefox wanting to default to send all my stuff to Cloudflare without asking me. Uh, or more importantly, as a, a network administrator, uh, you know, if I was running... The DNS for a company, or even you know my house, which is my network, I should get to decide what DNS servers get used. And you know the fact that Doe is designed to try to prevent you from filtering it. I understand that, but at the same time, this is my network. I should get to control what who gets DNS from where.
0: Yeah, but in Firefox, you can turn it off very easily if you're the administrator.
1: Yeah, but how do I do that on every device in my house? Right, like they've taught. I think they're. They've worked up some workaround where, like, if you make a certain non-existent DNS entry exist, then it will deactivate it or something.
2: Obviously, you set up a Windows 2016 server in your house, an Active Directory, and then you deploy your group policy object. <laughs> and, and
1: how does that apply to somebody's iPhone?
2: <laughs> uh, you can actually join iPhones to uh, Active can, Directory yes. management as yeah. well. But Yeah. It's I'm I'm not actually championing this, and in case anybody's not certain, this is a joke.
1: <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So the biggest problem is that it, it's changing the way some of the stuff on the internet works, and a lot of this is all an outgrowth of the fact. You know, people switch to things like Google and Cloudflare and Quad Nine because your ISP was either evil or incompetent, uh, where either your ISP DNS was just too slow because they didn't put enough effort into it, or they were doing things like. Hijacking your Google results before that was HTTPS or just like injecting ads or blocking websites or whatever. And so we end up moving DNS far away. And that was silly. But breaking the ability for me to have my own local DNS server and have everything
2: go through that and be able to apply my own rules kind of upsets me a bit. To be fair, though, I mean, that's really not DNS over HTTPS doing that. That's browser manufacturers doing that. That's them ignoring your system settings for DNS resolution. Yeah. And that's been pissing me off for years. Uh, Firefox and Chrome have both been doing their own DNS caching since before DNS over HTTPS yeah. was a gleam in anybody's eye. And yeah, it pisses me off immensely. I'm like, look, I have a system resolver. Stop trying to get in the way and you know be helpful. It's just DNS is not that freaking complex and just honor my Etsy resolve.conf and get out of my hair. Yeah. And like even Android as an OS,
1: most times will try to use Google and just ignore what you tell it via DHCP. Unless you've actually blocked Google and made it not work, it will eventually give up and use your DNS, but it really, really wants to avoid doing that. Normally the way you did this in the past was at your firewall, you just blocked all DNS requests out except for via your resolver. So either it went via your resolver or it didn't work. And. Doe is designed to stop that from being an option, which does achieve their goal of of not making it as easy for a nation state to to screw with your DNS. But it also, you know, the nation state of my house wants to be able to screw with DNS for everything in my house.
0: Yeah, but your average person definitely doesn't want to do that because they don't even know what DNS is. And so surely for normal people, this is a good thing to enable it by default.
1: Well, so, so this service being run all out of Canadian data centers so that, you know, you're not going to Google in the States every time you're doing a query and so on is a good thing. So I'm, I'm, I don't am i think this is something that CIRA as the company that runs our top level domain and so on really needs to be involved in, but I'm happy that this exists. I'm just not totally happy with DOH, but you know, I'm I think I've lost that battle mostly already. But in the show notes, I did put uh, links to two talks by Paul Vixie, who's even more animated about this and explains it uh, quite well. And he actually uh, also has a script and, and firewall rules that will actually, for every HTTPS connection that goes out, it talks to that IP by getting the right host name for it and asks it to do DO. And if it does, it adds it to a blacklist. So it actually defeats... <laughs> DNS over HTTPS. Uh, So if you need that, uh, it's worth checking out uh, those
0: talks uh, that I linked in the show notes. All right, well, let's talk about Apple. There is a strong rumor, there's been a rumor for years now that they're going to switch their laptops over to ARM. And I think it was when we recorded last week, that uh, the rumors really ramped up with a piece in Bloomberg. And it really does look as though next year they are going to launch at least one laptop, maybe more, running on an ARM-based system. And so presumably, much like with the x86 transition from PowerPC, they will have been testing this internally for a number of years, and they're almost ready to do it. It is very speculative, so we probably shouldn't talk too much about Apple, but I wanted to get your feeling for where the industry is going. I mean, do you think that we are actually going to be moving away from x86 anytime soon?
1: It depends. You know, for mobile devices it can make sense. You know, I think in this particular case the thing that's very different about arm versus a lot of other processors is in general arm doesn't make a generic cpu like an x86. Mm-hmm. They license to you the building blocks to design your own cpu, which Apple's been doing for the like the iPhone and iPad. And so it's a very logical extension now that they've been making basically specifically for Apple CPUs that they would want to do that for at least like I think the article says the MacBook Air is the, the most yeah, yeah. likely target because it's basically an iPad with a keyboard built in, right? <laughs> uh, it's It's... Getting closer and closer to being a mobile device and, and less like a laptop, and so it can make sense. And yeah, if you're if you're Apple, it's like, well, we can design our own CPUs that are exactly what we want, and we know that maybe they'll less likely to have Intel like the um, Spectre meltdown type things. Or you know, in the, at the current rate, it's just Intel's having problems getting smaller, the lower lithographies, and and just supply shortages and so on. And Apple's like, hey, if we we're big enough, we can control the price. If we can just work directly with the fab and build our own CPUs, it can make sense for them.
0: Plus, we're getting closer to a point where the performance-to-what ratio makes more sense for ARM.
2: Right. Well, it depends on your workload. You know, In answer to your original question, you know, are we getting closer to moving away from x86? I don't think this is moving away from x86. It's more like what we're starting to see is x86 is the meat in an ARM sandwich, you know? You've got ARM devices on the very low end, like phones and, uh, you know, Raspberry Pis and now maybe these new MacBook Airs. And then on the high end in the data center, you're starting to see ARM creep up where we're, sca- you know, where you scale out, not up. But there are things that ARM does not do very well. Uh, it does pretty well on integer workloads. It does very well with, uh, you know, high memory bandwidth workloads. But once you start hitting floating point, it bogs down. Um there's there's room for both in the ecosystem, and I don't think ARM is poised to just do away with x86 anytime soon.
1: Well, yeah, especially like in the server market, ARM previously had had a lot of trouble making anything because, you know, again, they don't like we don't make a CPU, we just make an ISA, and, and you make your own CPU out of it. And you know, we had what like, Cavium and uh, Ampere tried to do that, and the Cavium ones went really poorly. The Ampere ones are starting to do better, and we're starting to actually see things that have PCIe slots where you could put a, the same network interface you put in a regular server into it and it actually work and starting to see performance that's almost equivalent with the like the Graviton 2s that Amazon is using. So ARM is starting to get there. They have this um, the biggest problem with ARM has been that every model of CPU is, is completely different and not necessarily anywhere related or compatible with the, the other ones. And you know, before they had something like ACPI or something to describe the devices, you got, you know, there was these arcane flattened device tree files that describe what hardware is plugged into the machine. And it it's kind of this static thing, which makes sense in the case of something like a Raspberry Pi, where it's just all the little bits on a board. But if you're making a normal server you can plug things into, that didn't make sense. So they they've got this new uh, like server ready certification or something that ARM's trying to do to have Like a minimum viable product that just means that if you buy an ARM server that has, is going to have at least these features and be somewhat compatible with some other ARM server. And, you know, they're making headway and maybe eventually there'll be something interesting there. I can see places like Amazon considering replacing x86, like racks of x86 servers with racks of ARM ones, but that's probably because they're not after peak performance in most of these. Half of them
2: are sitting idle most of the time, anyway. Again, w- where you scale out, not scale up, it makes a ton of sense because the you know the servers they do tend to be um, their performance tends to be more pre- more predictable and consistent than x86. Uh, because they don't go for the uh, out of order branch prediction stuff mm-hmm. uh, and they don't do hyper threading. Uh, it's one thread per core. Pretty much if you run a benchmark twice, you know, CPU wise, you're going to get the same result every time on the ARM where you're not necessarily on an equivalent, you know, Epic or Intel part. Um, before we move on, since this is an audio-only podcast, I wanted to share with all the audience the fact that every time uh, Alan says anything about an ARM server, he is getting both hands up in the air for the scare quotes. <laughs> an ARM server. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember Linus Torvalds saying that ARM would never take off. Um, I can't remember which end. It was either on the client machines, um, you know, the developer's laptops or in the data center because you had this vicious circle. But if Apple does come out with a really nice MacBook Air that's running an ARM processor that you can compile at least some code and test code on, and then you can push it up to another ARM server, then maybe things will fall into place. Or am I reading that wrong? Um, You know,
1: it might be interesting. Like, I have an ARM laptop sitting here beside me, the Mm -hmm. Pinebook or whatever, but, yeah, you know, that's been a bit hit or miss. And, you know, that was a different target too. It's like a laptop you can buy for $120. Yeah. I think it's mostly the Apple scene that now that they're at the stage they're at, running Windows on your MacBook is not something people care about as much anymore. Mm. Uh, And so switching to ARM isn't going to be that big of a deal. Whereas, you know, they gained a lot when they switched to x86 because, you know, what was that, 10 or 15 years ago, being able to dual boot Windows on your Mac was something a lot of people were interested in. It's like, oh, I can have Windows and the the nice Mac hardware or whatever.
0: Well, yeah, and it made it much easier for developers, you know, companies developing big commercial software Mm -hmm. because they were targeting the same architecture, at least. So that made it a little bit easier for them. But, you know, if you look at things like Pro Tools, Avid, the big applications logic and all of that, like, I can't see that running well on ARM. And I can see it being a big pain in the ass to port stuff over to ARM. So... I think that we're going to see probably a longer transition period than we did last time. It was only a couple of years, three or four years, I think,
2: transition between PowerPC and x86. I don't know if I'd agree with you about the difficulty of porting applications over on ARM, Joe. Um, Most of the applications that you're actually putting your hands on, I think they're going to be fairly close to processor agnostic for the most part. Either you've got the performance or you don't. Um, Now, when you brought up the point earlier about, you know, when when Alan brought up the point about Windows not being as important on a Mac anymore, that actually raises another interesting question. Yeah, people aren't quite as hot for parallels as they used to be, which is good because on our MacBook Air, you're not going to be doing that. But what if, on the other hand, um, and I haven't even heard so much as a rumor of this, but imagine if instead your parallels... Was allowing you to run, you know, iOS applications on your MacBook Air, you know, or MacBook Air applications potentially even on your iPhone. That could be pretty cool.
1: Yeah. So the Armv8 that they're basing this on does have some hypervisor extensions. I don't know how good it is, and yeah, it's not going to be able to emulate x86. I don't think, but that could get interesting, especially like we're talking about a bit from development perspective of being able to to emulate an iPhone on your MacBook Air. Although I think in that case they would target less the Air and more the the Pro if you're talking developer stuff, but I think at first they yeah, I think we're seeing going to see a longer transition and it's going to start with just the Air which is targeted at quite a bit different set of users than the, the MacBook Pro or the the Mac Pro cuz yeah, like you were saying, applications in general are are quite portable. Like, you know, if you wrote your application in C, it will just compile. Uh you could, You just have to tell it, hey, target this processor instead of that one. And in general, there's not that many differences. Now, things uh, like high-end for video editing and audio editing and so on might have assembly-optimized routines or stuff that needs work. So I expect, yeah, it might take some time. You know, the biggest thing is just going to be that the binary is different. And so it's, I doubt they're going to do the same fat binary thing they did with the, the uh, PowerPC to x86 thing. So my prediction would be, is it'll start with something like the Air... And they'll see how that goes. And and I agree with Joe that it'd probably be a rather long transition just because, but you know, at the same time, Apple's been happy to uh, throw compatibility under the bus before and be like, yeah, you're, you're the stuff you bought for your three-year-old laptop
0: isn't going to work on the new laptop. Yeah. And if you've just spent 50 grand on a, a Mac pro, then you're just shit out of luck.
1: Well, if you spent 50 grand on a Mac pro, you probably should have bought the Ram third party <laughs>
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and the graphics cards. Yeah, you know, I'll say again, I, I think a lot of the compatibility problems are maybe getting a little overhyped because, uh, you know, if you, if you look at something like the Pinebook or if you've ever bought a more capable ARM Linux box, like not the Raspberry Pi, but maybe like an Odroid or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can run a full Linux desktop on those things. And the only issues you really have, they don't have anything to do with the processor. It's crappy video drivers typically that yeah. put a hitch in your giddy up. Other than that, everything just works fine. You can just apt install all the same software and have everything just work. And if Linux can do that, you know, on basically no real budget, just, you know, a little oomph and whatever, I, I find it hard to believe that Apple wouldn't be capable of making sure that, uh, you know, Mac OS runs fine on arm along with the applications
1: well so definitely the os and everything that apple bundles will be able to work no problem it's mostly going to be you know third-party things you bought in the app store does the developer care about arm i guess and if they sell, if, if suddenly apple's selling a bunch of arm machines they probably will
2: yeah how many of those that are in the app store are actually using like hand-tuned assembly and not just like throwing everything out in objective c or whatever though Exactly. And, you know, like you were saying,
1: pretty much any open source application, it's just a couple of compiler flags that change to say, hey, make an ARM binary instead of, you know, on FreeBSD, when you run on a Raspberry Pi 3 or whatever, and you package install stuff, most of those were actually built on an x86 machine with just the option saying, make this for ARM. You know, we have a couple of native ARM package builders, but even the 64 core ones can't really keep up with uh, a beefy x86 server. Yeah, And so, yeah, I don't think there'll be that many compatibility problems. It'll just be, you know, this app that hasn't been updated in three years hasn't been updated to work on ARM. I think people in the ICO ecosystem are more used to this
2: type of of thing anyway. Yeah. And let's be honest here. Apple really does not care a whole lot about third-party software vendors. Never have. I don't think they ever will.
1: There's a little bit more on this one I just wanted to talk about. Um, ARM has another project going on called Morello, uh, which is... In concert with Cambridge University in the UK, uh, which is to have basically a 128-bit architecture, but it's just running 64-bit apps. And the idea is you use the top 64 bits to implement capabilities on the memory pointers. So you can actually design a CPU that prevents buffer overflow and other vulnerabilities in software. Because the pointer you get to the buffer knows how long it's supposed to be and won't let you read past it. And you can even make, you know, different Parsi applications have their own kind of copy of the pointer that restricts what they can do so that it makes it hard to, you know, make a a JPEG image that breaks out of the Chrome sandbox and things like that. And that's interesting new extension to hardware to actually implement the old, you know, 1970s capabilities concept from computing, but in hardware uh, with the supporting software. And there's some links to that in the show notes
2: if you're interested. That sounds super cool. And I very much look forward to finding out what we didn't think about in this (laughs) unbreakable approach. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right, let's move on. If you want to get in touch with us to ask questions for Jim or Alan, then the best thing to do is email us. And that is show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com slash two underscore five admins, or just go to 2.5admins.com. Everything's there. And the email address is not incomplete on the contact page. It's there to stop spammers and as an intelligence test. So uh, I'm sure you'll work it out. All right, so a quick one. This is from Frank. He is setting up a ZFS RAID setup. He had some three terabyte uh, Western Digital REDs, which are about to die by the looks of things. And so he wants to know what drives you recommend and is it best to use exactly the same drives together or is it better to combine different disk types to avoid simultaneous fails so what do you two recommend here
2: i mean my recommendation right now is a uh, seagate iron wolf they're basically what western digital red was before western digital started throwing smr in there seagate doesn't get unmitigated praise from me uh, because they are sneaking smr into desktop drives but they did make a very strong commitment to me, you know, with my Ars Technica hat on that they do not have any SMR in the NAS channel and will not put it there in the NAS channel because it's simply inappropriate.
1: Yeah, uh, that's what I recommend as well. For a home NAS, I wouldn't recommend the Iron Wolf Pros, which are uh, the even fancier ones. But yeah, the Iron Wolf is probably your best bet. And they're basically the same cost as the Western Digital Reds, but you're getting the guarantee that there's not going to be SMR shenanigans going on there.
0: And what about combining different drives so that they won't fail at the same time?
2: I think that's a little bit too fancy. The real answer is have backups. Yeah. <laughs> um, in general,
1: other than, you know, there a couple times in history have been like a, a major fault with an entire model line of hard drives. But in general, that's not that big of a concern. Your bigger concern with mixing is making sure they're at uh, equivalent hard drives. You don't want to be mixing uh, a slow desktop drive and, and a like a 5400 rpm desktop drive and a, a, a NAS drive or something. Yeah. But yeah, in general I wouldn't bother with going with a bunch of different manufacturers, you know, I, it's not that you can't, you know, if you're if you're building your array over time and you get Whatever one's on sale, that's that's a thing.
2: Well, really, you you can't because there aren't a bunch of different manufacturers. If you've got an 8-drive RAID Z6, then if you don't want, you know, an overall manufacturer failure to bring your array down, then you need four different manufacturers so you have no more than two of any given type. And I got news for you. There's only three in the world. There's Toshiba, there's Seagate, and there's Western Dig. Yeah, because Western Digital bought Hitachi and, and de- diversified yeah. the, the
1: world. So, yeah, there's only three options. Uh, and right now, Seagate's the one that's has the easiest path to guarantee you're not getting SMR.
2: Now, I will throw out there one other option for folks who uh, might be interested in a little bit of higher performance drive for their array. Um, I've been using refurbished HGST helium drives for quite a number of years and had very good luck with them. Uh, they typically come to you with not a whole lot of hours and not a whole lot of wear on them. They're usually off of a fairly short term lease. Um, you can get them pretty inexpensively, uh, frequently they were cheaper than Western digital reds at the same capacity when I would buy them. And, uh, the only issue there is that, you know, you are in some way, shape or form giving money to Western digital for a NAS and while an ultra star doesn't have SMR in it. And I don't think they're going to be introducing it into, you know, that line anytime in the foreseeable future, you just have to weigh with your own conscience. You know, do I want to potentially give money to Western digital? How mad am I at them right now?
1: I have some of the pre-Western Digital Hitachis like the HE6 and the HE12, the 6 and 12 terabyte Helium ones, and they've been amazing. Yeah. I really wish that HGST hadn't got bought by Western Digital or they at least kept the line separate. Uh, but they've, you know, they don't sell any drives under the HGST
2: moniker anymore. So sad days. Yeah. There's, they're still available, but they're Western Digital Ultra Star now. Um, not, not really HGST. Mm. In theory, eventually, if enough people are mad at Western Digital, you may start seeing refurbished Seagate Exos drives uh, show up in the channel as well. Mm-hmm. But right now, like I don't ever see those. It's, it's just ultra stars I see everywhere coming off a of refurb.
0: All right, let's move on. Jake wrote to us and asked, I'm curious what your thoughts are regarding automatic updates and automatic rebooting after updates. He was talking about using unattended upgrades, which I use on, on my boxes.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one. Running FreeBSD servers, I've set it to automatically install the updates uh, for the OS, but that those generally take a reboot to to take effect. With FreeBSD, you have the option of either using the latest package set, which gets updated every two or three days, or the quarterly set, which is generally doesn't change much except for security updates. And quarterly is the default, and so oftentimes you can get away with it. But you know, it is not something maintained by people who are getting paid, so you don't have any real promises there. But in general, it's probably fine. It it
2: depends what you're doing. My answer is you've you've absolutely got to have automatic security upgrades, which is what unattended upgrades gives you. Um, if you're not getting automated security upgrades, then you're going to get you know automated owned at some point or another because you didn't you weren't enough on top of it when a critical vulnerability came out and your systems didn't get patched before you know somebody scanning the internet found them and and owned you. And like, you know, like Alan said, most of these things don't require a reboot. In general, the only things that are going to require a reboot are a new kernel or a new video driver. For the most part, that's, that's about it. And, you know, over in the Linux world, If you're content to sign up for a live patch service like Canonicals, there's even the possibility of, you know, patching the in-memory kernel and not having a reboot on that either. I don't know how much I trust that personally. Mm. My strategy is unattended upgrades is always on. And on a critical system, I will generally have a scheduled reboot, you know, like once a month. So I'm extending my vulnerability window a little bit on kernel vulnerabilities, but generally you've got to already have a toehold on the system to do anything with kernel vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm getting those, you know, the day they come out, I'm patched. So that makes me happy.
0: What I do is I use unattended upgrades and then have it email me when it's time for a reboot.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Like like Jim was saying there, most of the time a reboot isn't that required. Like The most recent one that was a big deal was another OpenSSL vulnerability. Uh, luckily, that one basically only let them crash your web server or mail server or whatever the application that was using SSL was. So just denial of service on it, basically, rather than actually compromise your system. But yeah, you can just package, upgrade, and get the newer version, and you just have to restart the service. There's no reason to reboot anything. Uh, and so, Yeah. Like Jim was saying, it's the best way to to close that window between when the fix comes out and when you're fixed. Because uh, otherwise, every bit of time that you're still open is time for someone to own you.
2: Yeah, and over on the Linux side, unattended upgrades will also kick all the services that need to be. Like if you get mm-hmm. an OpenSSL security upgrade, uh, unattended upgrades is not only going to patch OpenSSL, it's going to automatically restart Apache, SSHD, anything else that's depending on it.
0: But I would never want a reboot to happen in my absence because you just never know, right?
2: Well, you better. (laughs) I mean, you're going to have to reboot the system eventually. You can't just run on the same kernel for three years like it's 1994 again.
0: Yeah, but that's why I have it email me. And then when I'm ready, I will SSH in and reboot it and then make sure everything comes up properly and then get on with my day.
1: Well, I think this one comes down a bit to, are, are you still the old type of admin who has servers that are like pets? They all have names and personalities. Or are you the new
2: style where they're cattle and you are got to be ready to shoot them in the head at any
1: moment? <laughs> yeah.
2: My servers all have names like Prod0, HS0, and DR0. So that tells you where I'm at on this. Right. And, and so, you know, if it's real stuff that's meant to be in production,
1: it has to be able to survive a reboot at any point and come back up properly. Uh, and if it doesn't, you'd failed to do some bit of work you should have done before my workstation is never rebooting without i telling it i don't stand for that kind of shit but uh for the servers yeah they have to be able to otherwise you just have a ticking time bomb uh and just because you can manually diffuse it sometimes when you need to doesn't mean anything
2: yeah the the flip side to your concern joe about you know oh well what happens if it reboots and it doesn't come back up is, uh, you know, you reboot it on a regular basis. You know when it's going to reboot and you have automated monitoring telling you if it didn't come back up so that you can deal with it.
0: Yeah, but that would require me to be a proper sysadmin and not half of one.
2: We'll get you there. No, we won't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I've been saying to people, I think half is a bit rich. I think maybe 2.1 admins is what we should have called this. But it's too late now. We're two and a half. All right, well, we better get out of here then. Uh, Remember, you can email us show at 2.5admins.com if you want to ask questions. And you can find links to everything at just 2.5admins.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington.
2: I'm at Alan Jude, two Ls. And I'm at JRSSnet. We'll see you in two weeks.